The Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing truism attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine over the long term. In other words, emotion drives short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations drive returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, we'll discuss the coronavirus and the end of the historic bull market. We'll also talk about how investors should respond to the current crisis, expectations for future market returns, and potential bright spots. Plus, my interview is with Aaron Leete from PIMCO. Welcome to The Wang Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Well, it's been a wild few days in the markets. Investors are reacting in real time as the implications of the coronavirus spread around the world. We typically begin our show with a look at sentiment. So let's bring in our guest, Grant Engelbart, Senior Portfolio Manager and Director of Research at CLS Investments. Grant, people are pretty jittery at the moment. Is it nervousness or is it panic? Well, that's uh, that kind of depends on who you are, I think. But from the looking at the numbers themselves, as far as sentiment, which takes into account people's more or less feelings on the market, of course, and then their their positioning as well, uh, there's some some uh, some panic present in in certain asset classes. So equities have come down from a sentiment perspective, which means highly pessimistic, which is quite positive for future returns. So just keep that in mind throughout these various asset class descriptions. On a, on a long-term basis, equities are, are low or, or pessimistic. And on a short-term basis, with you know the historic moves we've seen this week, equities are at you know, nearing one of the lowest levels we've seen uh, recorded, uh, nearing actually 2019 lows, which were even uh, rivaled 2008 lows from a sentiment perspective as far as bearishness uh, on the market. So that's good for positive, that's, that's positive for future returns. Other asset classes, bonds are the opposite. So we'll talk about interest rates a little bit later here, but the optimism towards bonds is excessive um, and reaching levels we haven't seen in in a long time and at an extreme level. Uh, the, the U.S. dollar uh, is is pessimistic now. Uh, oil is very pessimistic as well. So uh, after what happened with OPEC recently um, and and the, the large decline in oil prices, there's Oil is at an extreme low, um, which is also positive for future returns there. And then gold is is a bit elevated, but not necessarily at extreme. So people like gold, but they don't they haven't clamored to it as a hedge as they have in previous cor- uh, corrections, at least to the same degree. Well, the bull market has officially ended. The Dow entered a bear market Wednesday, March 11th, and the S&P followed on Thursday. We're recording this on Friday, and the market did rally this morning. Rusty, what's your current assessment of the market, and what should investors expect? Well, I think the biggest takeaway, at least in the short term, is that we're going to see incredible volatility. And usually when we start to get volatility like this, it does persist for weeks. Hopefully it's weeks, but that is the typical sort of environment when volatility does this. Uh, when we're going to have really down days, it it's going to be more – it's going to seem more negative than it really is. It's just not that as bad as what the market is reacting to. And, and on the up days, we're going to have some incredible up days as well. Things aren't quite as good either. It's just the market is incredibly volatile. 
uh, liquidity conditions um, are just different and the markets will just get pushed around. So for longer term investors, they really should sort of kind of take a step back a little bit if they can from looking at all the headlines. Uh, the potential economic impact is still being assessed. We're still analyzing it ourselves and getting a lot of commentary from a lot of the strategists on the Orion Portfolio Solutions. And it is clear there is going to obviously be a negative uh, economic impact uh, on the overall economy and our corporate earnings in the near term. Is it a quarter? Is it two quarters? Either way, uh, virtually everybody agrees that there should be a snapback uh, a few quarters down the road, and probably a pretty substantial one at that, too. I do think one thing we did talk about, is it a panic? And one thing that's sort of a characteristic of a panic is that there is some more irrationality to it, and things just do get pushed farther uh, than they probably should, given what the underlying fundamentals. Again, that usually means that you get a snapback, and it's consistent, again, with the sentiment surveys that Grant was talking about as well. Again, it's, it's we're always trying to talk about market corrections are normal. Uh, the speed of corrections uh, may be faster than they were in the past. It's kind of a new normal regarding that. And again, I think that some of these corrections will be faster for a combination of reasons, whether it's sort of information loops through 24-7 news channels, social media, uh, whether there's less market makers, whether there's just more algorithms uh, trading on short-term momentum. There's a lot of different reasons why. Uh, volatility has kind of changed like this, but it is an expectation I think investors should have moving forward. And how should investors respond? Well, I think it's for a long-term investor. uh, And again, the assumption is that her portfolio was appropriately built in the first place. And when it's appropriate, that was taking into mind all the different kinds of market conditions, um, whether the market's going up, whether the market's going down, whether the market's going sideways. And that's the reason why portfolios are built really with strategies that kind of consist there can be strategic, they can be tactical, they can be diversifiers. And the reason why investors should really have exposure to all three. Really, no big changes are required. Now, that said, uh, obviously, there are some opportunities that are appearing. Uh, Some sectors, for instance, might look a little more attractive. Uh, In the fixed income world, a lot of things look a little more attractive. Uh, Nonetheless, big changes aren't required. That said, if you're a taxable investor, you should be not sitting still. Um, I know, again, a lot of the investment managers on the OPS platform, including CLS, have been very aggressive in doing tax loss, tax loss harvesting. So we have been doing a lot of trading, and that's not because we're trying to reduce risk or increase risk necessarily. It's, again, we are realizing pretty substantial economic value on some of this tax loss trading we're doing. Of course, other good practices is – the, the portfolio was appropriate before. Rebalancing is a strong consideration. Again, a lot of the strategists on, on OPS have been doing that. If you're an investor, speaking to your financial advisor, getting her take on the market, uh, your take on your updated risk tolerance is good. But you know, in the end, the important thing to remember is the market's on sale. Valuations and prices are down 20% plus, and so expected returns have increased. And are there any potential market positives from this crisis? Well, I... From the market standpoint, I think, of course, there will be, and there's a lot of a lot of different things that suggest we we should have a really strong rally once we kind of find our footing. First of all, monetary policy, central banks in terms of cutting rates and supplying liquidity into the marketplace is extraordinary. That alone, right there, is an incredible positive for the markets. Second, fiscal policy, whether it's government spending, whether it's tax cuts, payroll tax cuts, whatever it is. Those are, again, incredibly positive for the stock market. Of course, energy prices are well off. That is 
a plus for the market. Economic uh, fundamentals uh, coming into the crisis were strong, particularly in the labor and housing. Obviously, this is all going to take a hit, but was there enough momentum there to kind of help hold up the market? Those are all incredible pluses. Just never mind the fact when you look at historical precedents, usually after an epidemic has been identified and sort of peaks, the market has, generally speaking, above average returns moving forward. The market generally has above average returns after it's off 20%. There's all these different historical precedents to suggest that the market should find Find its footing and actually have a pretty strong rally into year end. So we knew the bull market couldn't last forever, right? Obviously, no one was expecting this kind of global crisis, but can we cite any other reasons behind the market's fall? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously, coronavirus right now is the leader. It's been the leader in terms of the news flow for a while, but I would have argued there were other things that were more significant to the market correcting earlier. And one is the presidential election, the primaries. And I think that some candidates were seen by many market participants as potentially disruptive. And obviously, there's been kind of a big change in in the political landscape, uh, not only who might win the Democratic nomination, but who might win the presidency now. So that's caused some disruption uh, to the market by some investors. Probably even more substantial recently is the price war that broke out between OPEC and Russia. And again, there's it's there's a lot of different reasons why they're doing that, but that actually is is pretty disruptive. Uh, obviously, it's a big plus for consumers, but that is something we're watching carefully because of the impact it may have throughout the U.S. economy, whether it's on the uh, the fracking industry, whether it's on corporate bonds. So it is something to follow, and that is another reason why the market has been down. Grant, you had some counsel for investors in your most recent weekly three two. What's your advice? Well, the the first piece of advice is uh, the oldest adage there is in investing, but uh, that diversification really helps in times like this. There is this correlations go to one argument that happens in market uh, turmoil where everything kind of falls together. And there's some truth to that, but not if you're really properly diversified. So fixed income, as as mentioned, you know, interest rates have fallen dramatically, which lowers the future returns on fixed income. But that process of lowering interest rates is a huge benefit to portfolios as fixed income is part of that, if that makes sense. So uh, the, the downside hedging uh, aspects of, of owning, uh, you know, high quality fixed income, is it was clear throughout this this turmoil and this downturn, and that's uh, beneficial to portfolios. Also expanding around the world, uh, globally invested portfolio um, the, essentially, the peak for U.S. equities coincides with the the flattening of Chinese uh, coronavirus cases. Uh, essentially, uh, somewhat control there in in the middle of of uh, February, um, and and China the the onshore Chinese stock market has outperformed the United States since then by a significant margin. So. It's important to think about that and, and own different parts of the world, even if they, they may seem riskier um, than than uh, the United States. And then areas like commodities, alternatives, and things like that um, do provide a benefit to portfolios as well. We mentioned oil and, and the issues that have been there uh, in, in that asset class, but commodities are broader than that. They also contain agriculture and gold, which have been supportive uh, throughout this drawdown. So that's your kind of first leg of defense. And then we also think that you know building a risk-based, risk-targeted portfolio and controlling and knowing your risk is hugely important. Um, and so the combination of targeting a specific level of risk and maintaining that through through uh, you know market cycles up and down, um, and then doing that with a, a broadly diversified portfolio helps on the downside. And I show some um, some index-based examples of that in the, in the commentary. 
You also wrote about the winners and losers in the decline so far, and obviously markets are changing rapidly every day, but are there any bright spots? Yeah, these these numbers are all be uh, stale most likely just by the by the hour it's amazing how inflation <laughs> is changing so fast yeah but but the general theme is is there so you know treasuries uh, long term treasuries in particular have done exceptionally well we're talking about 20% plus at least at one point in long term treasuries in the united states which is is amazing uh, especially after the year they had last year um Gold, Chinese uh, A shares or the onshore shore equities uh, are also positive, at least at the time of this writing too, as I, as I mentioned previously. Um, so I, I think that's important to bring up and kind of show what diversification looks like. Um, but I also wanted to show on this chart, essentially, some of the areas that are hardest hit and they're, they're hardest hit for certain reasons, but those reasons are likely not to persist. And those are areas that we're, we're starting to, uh, I guess, you know, d- dip our fishing wa- rods in the in the water there. So financial firms um, are hit by lower interest rates, um, energy companies, obviously, by lower oil prices, and then airlines are being hit hard by, you know, curtailed travel around the world. Um, but that's opening up massive opportunities in those areas. You know, <clears throat> you mentioned and you know China and you know failed to mention this and some of the positives going on in, in terms of sort of what's going on with coronavirus is the infection rate first of all infection in just absolute numbers is still going up in China but the infection rate the growth rate of it has slowed and since it has slowed the Chinese stock market has rebounded sharply and I don't have the latest number as of today, but I think coming into yesterday, one of the Chinese benchmarks was actually had a positive return when the S&P was off 20%. And so that's kind of a key thing to watch here in the U.S. is when the growth rate and the the infection rate sort of flips over. Right. Um, Finally, Grant, in your last section, just going back to the fixed income, uh, you wrote that not all yields are falling. So what do investors need to know about the fixed income market? Yeah, I, I think this stage uh, of, of a lot of people's investment lifestyles, um, for instance, my my retired father sent me an email this week asking about municipal bonds and their yields and what that means, that prices are at all-time highs, it yields all-time lows and things like that. Um, there, there's a lot of worry about where income is going to come from in the future. And with the 10-year treasury dipping below 1% and then touching half a half a percent uh, in the last week, which is a wild and all-time low number, uh, people are going to be scratching their heads a bit. So the idea here is that fixed income is not necessarily yielding the same, although some parts of fixed income may still have attractive yields and and those are opening up in areas. Um, But as fixed income yields fall, the yields on equities rise. And, And that's obviously because the price of equities is falling. But you have to kind of, you have to really think about that. I know equities are not bonds. That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, but areas like financials, like previously mentioned, energy, um, you know, maybe you don't want to dip your toe into energy, but financial companies are returning, you know, three to 4% dividend yields, but also basically double that when you take into effect uh, their capital return through stock buybacks. And, and that's true for a lot of different areas, the US and international markets. A lot of international markets don't buy back as much stock, but they pay more in dividends. And so there's there's really healthy yields in a lot of areas of the world. And people need to think about equities as part of that uh, income-oriented portfolio when they when they build that together. And, and want to think about that when you're looking for an income solution. Don't just rely on bonds. Uh, think about equities as well. I mean, that's an amazing story. I mean, that's just an amazing story. Some of the yields that you can get in a stock market right now. If, for a long-term investor who wants to emphasize an income or a dividend yield. Um, It's just an amazing time. 
Well, another potential bright spot that you addressed, uh, Rusty, in your monthly review is expected returns, known in the industry as capital market assumptions. First, let's explain how these work. They're based on three basic building blocks for generating returns. Yep, there are three basic building blocks for returns for any investment. And this isn't just the stock market or the bond market or real estate investing, really anything. And, and first of all is the yield or the income you get from that investment. Uh, the second thing is uh, the growth in that yield over time. So, for instance, like a company which has a dividend yield, if you held it for many years, it has the potential to increase its yield over time. Uh, it could obviously cut it as well, but there is that potential for growth. And then lastly is the change in valuation. So when we talk about valuations, how much you pay for a unit of fundamental value such as revenue or earnings, and given on market environments and other uh, environmental, uh, other macro considerations, uh, sometimes people will want to pay more, pay higher valuations. Sometimes they want to pay for lower valuations. Those three components really you can explain investment returns um, for any investment. Now at CLS, we use those. That also really drives our expected returns. Again, CLS being the in-house manager for Orion Portfolio Solutions, but we do on the margin do have other factors that will influence expected returns, including momentum, changes in risk, fundamental factors, and whatnot. Cost. Um, those are all important considerations for us as well. And what are CLS's current expectations? Well, when when we wrote about them recently, and um, it wasn't just the capital market assumptions for CLS, we also we also collect this, the uh, capital market assumptions for other strategists on OPS, and we look at CMAs from other investment firms as well. And really, the takeaways are basically the same across the board. And first of all, it was to expect below average returns for the U.S. Um, nobody actually, to be fair, I think a firm was looking for negative returns for the U.S. market, but really basically everybody was looking for low, definitely below average returns for the U.S. markets, particularly uh, larger U.S. companies, particularly growth-oriented uh, U.S. companies. The better expected returns were overseas, and international markets were considered to have higher expected returns. I think one firm of the many we looked at had a slightly lower return, but um, it was basically the same. But everybody, everybody had emerging markets substantially outperforming uh, the U.S. on an annual basis for the next five to 10 years. So it was pretty consistent across the board. It's something that we've been talking about. You know, some of those numbers, is, and for instance, is that emerging markets are expected to outperform the U.S. by over 5% per year. You think about compounding, that's, that's pretty big. Smaller companies are expected to outperform larger companies by nearly 5% per year. Uh, value stocks in the U.S. are expected to outperform growth stocks by 7% a year. Now, these numbers, as Grant and I were talking about, some of these numbers are already stale. Uh, I mean, the market has changed so much here, even in the last two weeks, that these capital market assumptions have changed. So be on the lookout for, and we'll talk about them on the podcast and in our commentaries, but how uh, expected returns are changing not only at CLS, but really for other firms um, on the OPS platform. A lot of these don't get updated necessarily to the end of the first quarter, but again, I think it'll be pretty interesting and it should tell a pretty good story. All right. Well, finally, um, the coronavirus has impacted another big event, one that we get excited about for every year, and that is the Berkshire Hathaway Shareholders Weekend. It's a major event that usually draws thousands of shareholders and visitors here to Omaha, and it is not going to go ahead as planned. Uh, first, let's just talk about what the weekend is going to look up, look like or what the meeting is going to look like, and then I want to talk about the letter that um, yeah. released recently. 
And by the way, Grant is probably just as big a Warren Buffett fan as I am, so definitely weigh in on me afterwards. But um, okay, some of the highlights. Well, obviously, the meeting, as you said, it was just this morning announced that the shareholder meeting will take place, but it's just the shareholders will not be attending, and the 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 Woodstock element won't happen. All the shopping won't happen, and. It is a really big deal in Omaha, and it is really a bummer. And I think I've attended every shareholder meeting for 15 years, and I attended some before that as well. So um, that's definitely a bummer. I guess I'll have to live stream it to make sure I don't break the streak. And um, but you know, but Warren Buffett in times like this is he just he writes and says such good things, and it isn't just his shareholder letter. He's done a couple recent interviews on television as well. And his it's his classic wisdom, and and then again it's classic because he's a long term investor, and the stock markets do serve long term investors well over time. In short, he remains a bull. He's as optimistic as ever on the long term prospects of the global economy and the markets. It is interesting to see his positioning, and you know that does have some insight. One is uh, he ha- his largest position is Apple, and so he he will uh, invest in tech. He has let go of his newspaper business, something he held for years. So it goes to show that um, he will adapt to market conditions. He does have a lot of cash in his portfolio. It's, it's kind of built up as he's looking for big deals. It's something that he does. I think another thing that he does, and it's something that kind of ties into what Grant said, is that he does have a lot of exposure to financial stocks, which have underperformed in recent years. They're high-quality, strong balance sheets, and there's a lot of really positives about it. Now, Berkshire has underperformed the overall market uh, when the bull market started over 11 years ago. Of course, it's now ended, and it did significantly underperform in 2019. Again, it's because he wasn't overweight the FANG stocks and a lot of the other stuff. Uh, But I I would expect it's going to do pretty well, um, Berkshire Hathaway, and similar investment strategies in the years ahead as this market sort of rotates away from what's been working in the past years, and it goes more along the lines of sort of classic, fundamental, active investing style. One last point that I can make, and I'll head off to Grant if I've left anything for him, is that, of course, everybody's talking about how Berkshire Hathaway is going to get hit when uh, Warren uh, and Charlie Munger's partner retire, but you know they have a succession plan in place. They've definitely groomed talent, and um, they're fully convinced uh, that uh, the Berkshire Hathaway stock should be well supported in the years ahead. Grant, did I leave anything? For you? You, <laughs> you covered, so you much covered it well. I'd just say I think, especially now with the recent drawdown, especially in airline stocks, of which Buffett owns the the three largest carriers in the United States in double digit fashion. Um, just just keep an eye out there. I'm not. I, I don't want to necessarily make any really bold predictions, but he has billions and billions of dollars in cash, and uh, has obviously shown an interest in those airlines. And those airlines have literally gotten uh, cut in half as from, from a valuation perspective. So um, I I'd, I'd uh, be very curious to see what happens there from an acquisition standpoint. Great point. He has all that cash. First of all, he's got to be buying back his own stock. Yep, definitely. He's he's built a huge position in the airlines. Delta being a name. Uh, he loves financials. Financials are off even more than the market. I mean, we talk about how as heavy as cash weight is. I wonder what it's going to look like by if he can talk about it too much yeah. in his shareholder meeting. I bet it's greatly reduced. It, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, we will, of course, be keeping an eye on the markets every hour of every day, and we'll be updating um, our listeners and our readers on clsinvest.com and orion.com. Before we uh, move to the next section of the podcast, Grant, any other words of counsel that you want to give to investors, people listening? Um, I I don't think so. You know, I think we've, we've, you know, tried to, uh, to get out there and communicate a a lot about what's going on here and and it can be scary and troubling, but obviously knowing where your risk is and, and as as long as you're comfortable with where that risk is long-term, 
Um, we think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, a lot of temptations like today when the market's up big um, to to either sell that or or to jump back in. Um, you, you really just got to stay the course. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Next up is Rusty's Q&A, and today he talks to Aaron Leedy of PIMCO. What did you guys talk about? Yep. So Aaron, uh, uh, Senior Vice President and Product Strategist at PIMCO, uh, we basically talked about uh, the product that she works with, PIMCO Income, the PIMCO Income Fund, which has been a strong performer, has a, a great uh track record and brand and is from one of the top fixed income firms in the industry. And so we basically talked about that. And we also talked about what uh, PIMCO's reaction is and what they're thinking about the current market conditions. And I think it's just a very useful interview and very appropriate for the times we're in. All right, let's take a listen. Well, today's guest on The Weighing Machine is Aaron Leete from PIMCO. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, this is a great time to have you on. Uh, PIMCO has several different strategies on the OPS platform, and they definitely have their fans, and performance has been solid, and there's been a lot of flows into those products as of late. So it's a great time to have you on. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and about PIMCO. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Rusty. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm Aaron Leedy. I'm a, a fixed income strategist here at PIMCO. Uh, have been here coming up on, on six years at PIMCO and, and in various parts of the asset management industry, really for more than 12 years. Uh, you know, here at PIMCO, I focus on some of our, our multi-sector fixed income funds, um, you know, including our, our income fund. Uh, and I really, you know, do a lot of meetings with our clients and then help to support our portfolio management team. Um, with questions they might have and, and part of the, the operational day-to-day as well. Uh, you know, at PIMCO, we are, uh, you know, the largest active bond manager in the world. We have a 49-year history and close to $2 trillion in assets. So we manage, you know, a lot of things. We manage equities and commodities and all. But I think our clients really know us as, you know, the authority in, in bond management. And so, we really seek to find, you know, best ideas across the, the fixed income markets and do it with a focus on both, you know, thinking about the, the macroeconomic environment as well as really bottom up security and, and sector selection. Yeah. Well, I've been a big fan of PIMCO for many years. I think I first visited the offices in Newport Beach probably almost 25 years ago now. So, um, yep, I've definitely been out there a lot and definitely love a lot of the strategies and the portfolio managers. PIMCO Income, that fund has been an incredibly hot seller on the OPS platform this year. Tell us a little bit about it in terms of what its strategy and objectives are. And then if you could just break down some of the current portfolio positioning as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is the fund that I probably spend the the largest piece of my time on. And it's one that, you know, is now one of our, really one of our flagship strategies uh, here at PIMCO. The fund was launched in, in 2007. It's one that has a lot of flexibility, a lot of guideline flexibility. Um, so certainly as a fund, you always think about you know, what your benchmark is. And we benchmark to the, the Bloomberg Barclays US Aggregate Bond Index. But we're not necessarily tied you know, in terms of kind of specific overweights, underweights relative to that index. So we certainly expect to outperform it over time, but we have a lot of flexibility and as we think about constructing the portfolio, you know, over time, 
we talk about you know having half of the portfolio in high quality sectors of the fixed income markets, uh, things like treasuries, agency, mortgage-backed securities, uh, investment-grade corporate credit. And that piece of the portfolio really designed to protect in, in risk-off markets like we've, we've been in for the, the past month or so. And then, you know, the balance there, about half of the portfolio over time in, you know, what we would call higher-yielding sectors. So not just, you know, high-yield corporate credit, but also things like uh, emerging markets, other, other pieces of the securitized credit markets. And so with this balance, you know, it's allowed the fund, the fund sits a step outside of, of core high quality bonds, but it's allowed the fund, you know, to deliver a pretty low volatility profile and yet a very attractive income stream over time. So, you know, as you might expect, the, the name is PIMCO Income Fund. Uh, we do seek to, to distribute a consistent and attractive, you know, dividend on a monthly basis. And that's really helped to drive the overall returns of the fund over time. Yep. So when you look at the fund and how it's classified on Morningstar, is it it's classified as a core plus fixed income fund, right? Or is it a it's core? It's actually in the, the multi-sector. The multi-sector. Morningstar now, compared category. to other multi-sector bond funds, how does the risk compare to kind of that peer group? We sit in that peer group. That peer group is a little bit all over the place in that, um, you know, you have a lot of pretty flexible mandates in there, but you also have quite a few funds that, you know, we would say take on a lot more credit than we do. Again, we seek to be pretty balanced across, you know, credit, but also high quality sectors. And so, you know, one of the big, uh, you know, key messaging points. And one of the things we really pride ourselves in managing the income fund uh, is that resiliency through, you know, market turmoil. And, you know, we, we launched the fund 2007, as I mentioned. So we were around during 2008, not immune to some drawdown, but, you know, really when you look relative to peers and, and relative to something like high yield, um, we've been able to really protect, uh, you know, to a, to a much greater degree over time. Okay, so you, you basically just answer this, but <clears throat> I'll kind of re-ask it in a different way. So, in in what kind of market environments would Pimco in, Pimco Income do best in, and what were the environments that it may sort of lag relative to competition? Yeah, so I mean, we've we've really focused on delivering and being resilient through drawdown periods. Um, but I think you know, given that you know, at Pimco, we are really leaders in bond markets. We have a deep, uh, you know, research teams and portfolio management teams to find best ideas. It's one that in up markets over time, you know, we've delivered pretty strong returns, um, up just over 8% last year, strong returns, uh, you know, protecting uh, assets in, in a year like 2018 when many things were down. But then, you know, really participating in upside markets as well. And um, so I think, you know, the, the answer to the question is, you know, I, I think given the fund's flexibility, we, we try to really be a strong performer in many different states of the world. And, and we think about, you know, what those potential outcomes in terms of tail scenarios are. But, you know, we've really sought to deliver resiliency through, through down markets and then, you know, go on the offensive uh, to be able to come through them pretty strong. Yeah, but obviously, uh, given the fund's track record, it's it's been a a great performer over full market cycles, and again, that resiliency and those defensive qualities have 
have made it attractive, particularly in market environments like it has been. And again, one of the reasons why it's been so popular of late. So we've already been talking for a while. One thing we haven't talked about is, of course, what everybody's talking about now, <laughs> and that is what is the view on coronavirus and how is it impacting the outlook on um, your portfolios? Yeah, I mean, we have seen just obviously a, a really swift, uh, sharp turn in markets um, you know, since February 19th, when when the equity markets, uh, you know, peaked, and it's it's been a really fast move lower in equities, but also in you know riskier segments of of the bond markets. Um, you know, it's kind of unfortunate because we started the year um, unfortunate for markets. It's obviously a, a very um, you know very real uh, you know human cost here, but. You know, we, we started the year with, with pretty strong fundamentals and, and pretty strong news in terms of, of trade and, and expectation for, you know, more solid growth here. Um, we do think it's likely we will see, uh, you know, a, a recession here globally and in the U.S., a, a technical recession here in the, the first and second quarters. Now, this feels a bit more like a, a crisis of, of confidence. We think there's certainly... Um, you know, the potential for a, a fairly solid bounce back as we think through the, the second half of the year, um, you know, given that we, we, you know, have a pretty healthy U.S. consumer, the banking system, very healthy uh, moving into this period of volatility. So um, certainly we've seen stresses in the markets. We've seen obviously uh, global central bank action and action from the Fed. Uh, and likely to see more of that. So it, it does feel like we're in a little bit of a new place when we think about uh, yield outcomes. Um, I would say broadly in income fund and other portfolios, we haven't been significantly moving yet to, to re-risk, but certainly there are some opportunities out there. I think there will continue to be opportunities here um, over the, the next few months. Uh, heck, I feel like you should have given me more there. So <laughs> I'm going to dig a little deeper. So obviously, interest rates have dropped a lot. So a question we're getting a lot right now is, should we be shortening duration or interest rate sensitivity of the portfolios? Another question we're getting here is, what are we thinking about credit? I mean, credit's been kind of expensive for a while, but now spreads have blown out in a lot of different areas. So maybe there's some more attraction there. And then there's a question just regarding various fixed income sectors. And, you know, a question that's come up a lot lately in uh, it doesn't may, may sound like kind of a, a, a normal fit for a PIMCO income, but it's something like high-yield munis that just got mm -hmm. incredibly just slammed of late. Any comment on duration, credit, and fixed-income sectors? Yeah, let me let me try to hit on all of those. Um, I mean, yeah, rates you know have have fallen very significantly. We were at a period. Um, you know, where the entirety of the U.S. Treasury curve was below 1%. Um, so really feels like we're in a bit of a, a new world. And I think this period has really highlighted, you know, why you do want to own some duration in your portfolio, uh, even when, you know, starting point of rates is fairly low. Fixed income and having some duration, you know, is the ultimate flight to safety asset class. And you want to have some protection in your portfolio, uh, as you think about balancing, you know, your, your stocks and your equity positions. Now, that being said, you know, for a fund like PIMCO Income Fund, which isn't going to try to, you know, exactly mirror, um, you know, the, the U.S. aggregate bond index, we actually are sitting fairly short in terms of our overall duration positioning today. 
Uh, we're not expecting rates to go, you know, markedly higher from here, but we think that, you know, intermediate and long-term rates, um, you know, could, could melt up a little bit and likely to trade, you know, a bit sideways. And, you know, you're not getting paid a lot at these, these very low yield levels to hold uh, a lot of duration, given, you know, the, some of the risks that, that we might see there. Mm-hmm. Great. On the, you know, yeah. on, on the credit side, um, yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, certainly a lot of volatility likely to be um, a lot more opportunities to come as well. I would say that, you know, one of the themes uh, across PIMCO portfolios and in the income fund so that we've actually been kind of reducing our, what we would call kind of generic corporate credit beta over the past several years. So, you know, we certainly still have some high yield corporates, about 10%. We have some IG corporates about, you know, another 10% or so. Um, but we've reduced that a lot from where we were a few years ago. Uh, there are opportunities out there. We really like uh, the, the banks and the financials where capital ratios look really strong. Uh, you're going to see some stress, obviously, in energy markets and in, you know, travel and leisure markets. And I think they're, again, likely to be opportunities going forward. We actually really still like uh, mortgage credit um, and, and, you know, high quality places of the mortgage market. I mean, agency MBS, so Fannie Freddie backed, um, actually trading at spread levels that we haven't seen since the financial crisis. And at that time, you know, there was real concern about the ultimate government backstop of Fannie Freddie. You know, that's not the case today. So um, we would expect as we see a more normalized market, those spreads to to come in significantly from where they sit today. Mm, That's what I was looking for right there. That was great. So a couple things you hit upon, which I think are really important is um, uh, just for listeners, is that I think when it comes to fixed income, and I'm sure you're going to agree with this. I think active management, which is, of course, being different than the benchmark and looking for opportunities in the marketplace, is really critical. And I think active managers and fixed income have shown they can add value over time. And obviously, PIMCO has done that. I also think that <clears throat> when you're looking also to get a fixed income exposure, you'd be able to tap into a firm with the depth and experience of doing credit analysis is critical. And then duration. Duration is one of those things where high quality duration is the ultimate diversifier. Everybody talks about all these alternative investments, which we're fans of, but really the ultimate diversifier is high quality duration. And we're defending it all the time. I have to admit, it gets a lot harder to defend high quality duration once at 30 to 50 basis points. Um, but nonetheless, it's obviously really important for portfolios. Hey, one thing I, I forgot to talk about, which is really important in terms of some of the listeners here, um, on the Orion Portfolio Solutions platform, there are three PIMCO models, asset allocation models. And I was hoping you kind of talk about um, what they are and what their current positioning is. And again, they're, they're called the income model, the enhanced core and capital preservation. If you can kind of talk us through a little bit on that, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we launched our fixed income models uh, a couple years ago, really to give, you know, our clients a a one-stop shop in order to, you know, add to their fixed income allocation and do it through a number of PIMCO portfolios, given that, you know, we feel that we deliver top tier fixed income funds really uh, across, you know, short term, across income, across core bond uh, management. Um, so yeah, within those funds, you know, really seeking to be pretty diversified, uh, you know, uh, our income fund, uh, and our low duration income, uh, kind of sibling fund 
in all three of those, as well as our PIMCO total return fund. So really giving you that high quality uh, core plus bond mandate. And then, you know, finding some of our best ideas in there as well. I talked about mortgages, our mortgage opportunities and bond fund uh, has a place in, in those models as well. Um, you know, depending on whether you're looking for income, enhanced core, or more of a shorter term capital preservation sleeve, you know, we think we can deliver best ideas, uh, you know, as a, as a one-stop shop. Yep. So you talk to a lot of advisors and investors. How do you recommend that they use these strategies and, and how should they be blended with other investment strategies? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always, um, you know, always a great idea to have a mix of, you know, offerings within your fixed income portfolio and your, your equity side and, you know, a mix of managers as well. Um, you know, when we think about our models, it's really a, a, a way to get a lot of diversification uh, in a very easy way. When we think about something like our PIMCO Income Fund, you know, given kind of the flexibility that it has and its active management, we've actually seen that fund deliver pretty low correlations to things like core bonds as well as equities. So it's one that can blend really well um, within a portfolio, you know, with other fixed income managers and with, you know, the equity side of your portfolio. Yeah. And I always love to ask this next question, um, but what do you think are the characteristics of, of a really good investment money manager? I guess another way to say it is, let's say you couldn't invest in a PIMCO strategy. <laughs> what would you look for in an investment manager? Yeah. I think that's a great question. Um, I think there is this this kind of magic balance in you know a, a money manager and a portfolio manager between really having a, a very healthy dose of humility, um, the ability to recognize when markets have moved and when your view might be uh, in fact wrong, um, and balance that humility with um, a really solid sense of, of confidence, you know, the confidence to invest in a, in a down market um, and take on a bit of risk. And it's hard to, to find both of those things in this sort of magic balance within, uh, within an asset manager. But I think when you can find it, it's a combination that's really powerful. Um, and as I would kind of look for, you know, other funds, obviously, you, you know, can look at, at past experience and past, you know, performance, but, but no indicator of, of future performance. But I think also looking for funds with, um, you know, a lot of flexibility with, uh, particularly in, in fixed income, you know, a, a, a deep bench as you think about active management, uh, really important uh, in what has been and will continue to be, you know, a really uncertain market environment. You know, one thing that, and I've been covering money managers for decades now, and I think, and I agree with everything you said, I, I think another thing I always look for is, I, I guess I'd call it like support or resources in the sense that, you know, you might have a smaller investment firm that does an amazing job in supporting advisors and investors through mm -hmm. education resources, commentary, whatever it is. And you might have large firms that actually don't do a great job of that. PIMCO, I have found, uh, again, over the decades, has incredible resources in terms of talking about the markets, educating investors about the markets. How can listeners learn more about PIMCO? in your opinion? 
Yeah, that, that's great to hear. Um, you know, I think the, the best way is really going to PIMCO.com. Uh, we have a, a PIMCO blog. We have a lot of resources on our website. You know, we seek to really be leaders on, you know, in terms of market thoughts, in terms of the Fed, in terms of our macro views. And so we publish a lot of content, whether it's our, our quarterly economic outlook, whether it's our outlook on asset allocation, or whether it's, you know, day-to-day -day kind of timely blog posts on what's happening in oil markets or um, expected response from the Fed or so forth. So, um, you know, I would suggest kind of that as a, a great starting place. And, and obviously myself and other resources at the firm, um, you know, really, really seek to provide that support on an ongoing basis as well. Awesome. Well, Aaron, I really appreciate your time today. Do you have any closing words for us? Yeah, well, thank, thank you so much for having me on. I think, you know, we're certainly back to a place where there is so much uncertainty, so much volatility. Uh, I think at PIMCO, you know, we've been kind of <laughs> preparing for this, this period and, and waiting for this period. We always talk about wanting to be the providers of liquidity in the marketplace. So, you know, we're pretty excited about finding great opportunities over the coming months and, and setting our portfolios really up to deliver for our clients. Excellent. Well, Aaron, thanks again for your time, and we'll talk to you later. Thanks so much, Rusty. Good stuff. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final thoughts. Stay balanced and stay the course. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine, and thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com.